Welcome to Season 6 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $90 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital's invested across private credit and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to partners of and friends of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is the CEO of the largest union-owned bank in the United States. She attended San Francisco State University undergrad before embarking on a celebrated career in a range of financial services companies, including time at AXA Financial, Sun Life Financial, and Lincoln Financial Group. Last year, she became the CEO of Amalgamated Financial Corporation, a NASDAQ-listed bank holding company with a history dating back to 1923. Amalgamated is known as a mission-driven, socially responsible bank and has a sizable minority owner in Workers United, an affiliate of SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Under her stewardship, Amalgamated has been performing well against a tough equity market backdrop and has been on the forefront of several social issues, which I look forward to discussing with her. So without any further ado, I'm very excited to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Priscilla Brown, CEO of Amalgamated Financial. Priscilla, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Good to be here. So Priscilla, let's go all the way back. Where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I was born in the United States when my parents were in school and college. And I grew up 10 years in Germany before coming to the U.S. Uh, when I was 14. Yeah. So tell me, you ended up working in media right out of school. Is that what you studied undergrad? Yeah, that's right. I was uh, journalism and uh, I ended up first going to KQED in San Francisco, the public television station. I always think somebody's first job post-school is formative on some level. Tell me about those first roles. What were you doing? What sort of media were you doing? Well, first of all, I was lucky enough to work with a lot of people whose careers have since blossomed. Uh, In one case, Belva Davis, who was the uh, first Black woman anchor in the United States, uh, was the anchor on this particular news show. But other really fun people remained friends were there as well. So tell me what you're doing. You were in business reporting. Is that right? For at least part of that? I started out doing this just in school. I was uh, basically a flunky. I took the tapes over to be processed. This is back (laughs) when all of this stuff was done on film and came back and edited it. That was my uh, college job. And then that sort of grew into producing news pieces And then I I worked on a show called Inside Today's Economy at a station called Chemo, which was an independent station. And it was the first sort of small business show that anyone had ever heard of. Amazing. So this was your sort of first taste of business. You had come from a journalism and media background. How did you get up the learning curve? Like, how did you learn that aspect of business? The guests on Chemo were amazing. They included the chair and CEO, two different people who were at Sutro and Company, which is a regional brokerage firm, uh, has since been bought twice and named something else. But they were the primary sponsors of the show. And I'd pick their brain before and after uh, when they would come on as guests until finally uh, one of them offered me a job. I love it. It's serendipity. All right. So then help me with the timeline. What was that first next step into the business world? Well, so then I went to work for Sutro. I was there for a few years. And then my family, who had come from Ethiopia to the U.S., we're living in the Midwest, and I decided to move out to Chicago to be closer to them. So I was in Chicago with uh, Payne Weber and then ultimately The Equitable, and then went to work for a company in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the time called Lincoln Financial. Yeah, so for our listeners less familiar, what was Lincoln Financial Group? 
Lincoln really changed. When I joined, it was a multi-line insurance company. And I joined to turn their asset management business from a cost center to a profit center. It was the largest reinsurer in the world. And I sold their asset management capabilities to smaller insurance companies who are clients of the reinsurance business. And uh, then I started a mutual fund at Lincoln. It was its first family of funds. had both institutional and retail classes of shares. Lincoln then moved from being a multi-line insurance company to selling its reinsurance business, also selling its health insurance business, and then selling its property casualty business. So in turn, those were its largest businesses and became a really focused financial services firm. We moved to Philadelphia and became focused on retirement and wealth management. I was there for 18 years. So over the course of those 18 really formative years in your career, I went from B2B perspective on things to a B2C as the company moved itself in that direction as well. And I went from you know really thinking about asset management uh, and portfolio management to then thinking about the brand of the company. So I'm always interested, you talked about how you were a reporter and through osmosis, it's almost like you were around these people in business and you learned about business. You know, you were not a marketing person. You were B2B and you become the chief marketing officer of Lincoln Financial Group. How do you build that out B2C? Like, how do you build out that side of your expertise to serve that role? Well, I think in any job you're in, you have to think more broadly about the impact the company is having on its stakeholders. And I don't know, maybe it was the journalism background, maybe it's, uh, you know, this just sort of natural interest in what customers and everyday people are thinking about your company. But that's what happened at at Lincoln. There were other marketing people uh, ahead of me and at the company, and they had done a great job. And my job was to take it even further. And I had the help of some really good properties. I think I just learned a lot as I went along because it was so interesting. Priscilla, 18 years in, you make the decision it's time to move on. Why was it right after you know almost a couple of decades there to take your next step then? Well, it was an interesting time. A few people who had been at Lincoln for some time had begun to leave, and they were going over to a company called Sun Life to set up the U.S. arm of that company and to basically continue doing what we had done all along but to repeat it at a, at a brand new firm and from scratch. And I thought that was really an interesting opportunity. So I left Lincoln to go to Sun Life. It probably, looking back, the most interesting time to be leaving and starting an annuities business in the U.S. because it was the end of 2008, beginning of 2009. And we ultimately decided that it was a terrible time. Of course, nobody had that visibility in the beginning. And I still look back and say that was one of, again, one of the most enriching times in my career because we were facing so many obstacles. And so my job was both strategy and marketing. I got the chance to think differently about product and about strategy. And in fact, also worked to look at what are the alternative businesses that Sun Life could get into. And one of them was that we were looking at the voluntary supplemental health business we ultimately decided it was it was too early. The intermediary world wasn't ready for an online business that they saw as competing with them. But later that became really important because that business became what is now called Emerge, 
Well, and per your point, doing that against the backdrop of a global financial crisis, I feel like you never really learn if everything's going swimmingly. Like that's then it all works and it's easy to make money. And, and it's when things are challenging against that backdrop that you really learn as an executive. Tell me about Emerge. I'm curious. I saw that on the timeline. Tell me about that business and what you were doing there. Yeah, it was great. So the president of Sun Life at the time was a man named Wes Thompson, who had also worked at Lincoln. Uh, it's now 2013-14-ish. And the supplemental health business could not be started at Sun Life for the reasons I gave. And when Wes left Sun Life after I did, he negotiated taking the intellectual property that we had developed with him and starting this business. And it really was a supplemental health business designed to help people who were not able to meet all of their healthcare needs through Obamacare. I thought it was a, a great solution to a problem. And it sort of tracked with what I had been doing my whole career, which was always off the corner of my desk, thinking about how we pay it forward and what sort of things we can do for people who are not as affluent as most of our clients. And if I understand Emerge correctly, you know, that was a business that you guys were, you had the IP, but you were starting a business. So tell me about that experience, because you've been part of building new businesses, but from pretty big established platforms. And I always feel like you learn a ton of lessons as an entrepreneur. My wife is starting a business right now. I've, I've got a front row seat to it. Tell me what you've taken from that experience in your senior leadership roles now, then. The biggest thing I've taken had less to do with the fact that it was entrepreneurial, quite honestly, and more to do with this notion of mission being a bigger part of my life, of my work life. And I really did start that at Emerge because there was a good sense for me that we weren't doing this. I wasn't doing it just uh, to make money. I was doing it because it really did address a problem that I was all too aware of having spent some time in the healthcare space. So that's really what it was about for me. It was about just that notion. And actually since then, I have had bigger and larger portions of my time and focus has been on that give back. Let me then skip ahead a little bit in your career, because that really came to a head in a fascinating way to me with, you know, your appointment last year as the CEO of Amalgamated Bank. So let me start there. For our listeners' benefit, no matter how familiar you are with, you know, with unions and labor history in the U.S., I think the history of Amalgamated is fascinating. How does a union end up controlling a bank, and how does that then end up as a public company in the modern age? So I have a slight correction for you. The union owns about 40% of the bank. I'll, I'll round down on controlling. I apologize. <laughs> Large investor. We are publicly traded, but that doesn't mean it isn't critically important. It's important not just because of the legacy. The legacy is amazing. This was a group of immigrants who were the unbanked, so much like many of the other represented groups in this country today, and they decided to start a bank. So that's an incredible legacy to stand on. But what's more important about that for us today is that we really are the 100-year-old quintessential ESG bank focused on all legs of ESG. And we're a pure play in the sense that we have clients that come from a broad array of segments, but we are pretty segmented, there's six of them, really. And what they all have in common is that they are change makers. They are groups that are trying to make a difference in some aspects. So whether it's on racial justice with color of change and a lot of organizations focused on that and on the wealth gap and so on, or whether it's on climate, we've got our own work that we've done around climate financing, but also our clients or people like Sierra Club, or whether it's on gender justice, we've got Planned Parenthood, 
whether it's unions, we care a lot about uh, workers' rights, or whether it's philanthropy, and we have a huge focus on that. But what all of these have in common is that they care a lot about moving the country forward in a progressive way. And for me, what's exciting about that is that when we want to take a stand on something that we view to be critically important, we have constituents all across the board who are associated with us because they believe in those things as well. So there's less red tape, if you will, when we want to move into something. I think that's a fascinating overview of how the business is set up. You talked in the press at points of of doing well and doing good, and I'm personally a believer those are not mutually exclusive goals. But how do you balance the twin demands of profit generation, as you say, you're a public company with public shareholders, you know, with the mission of being socially responsible? Yeah, we're also a B Corp, which means that we have a stated goal of addressing all constituents and stakeholders in addition to shareholders. But look, I mean, we are doing well through doing good. We're doing good through doing well, meaning. We're looking for those opportunities in the market that give us the chance to do something really good, whether that's solar, geothermal, whether that's looking at how to help CDFIs in various communities grow businesses, the work we've done recently around affordable housing and housing for homeless. All of these are doing good in the sense that they're helping society, but they're also good businesses to be in. Well, and I'll recommend to listeners, if you haven't listened to my podcast with Karsten Quitter, who's the CIO of Allianz, he speaks equally about, you know, those twin goals and how important they are. I'll also say relative to the doing well part, your stock is up 64% in the last year, despite an overall market correction. So something, Priscilla, is working under your stewardship. Priscilla, I would love to understand a little bit. I've read in the press that you're using credit card information to help monitor gun sales. Now, this is a problem that we all acknowledge in this country, and you've been incredibly thoughtful about how to use your position at Amalgamated Bank, as I've read about it, to try to do your part. So talk to me about that effort as sort of a case study. It's a perfect time to talk to you about it, because here's the deal. When you get that little text message or notification from a credit card company asking whether or not you really charged something... That's happening because something unusual was charged. Either you're sitting in New York and you charge something in San Francisco, or you typically buy a certain type of product, and now this is something very, very different. And that happens because we have merchant codes. We're able to understand not what you bought, because we don't have SKU numbers, but we understand where you bought it. And the very where you bought it, that very location presents for us there's been some sort of aberration which tells us we ought to just check in with you and see whether or not that's that's accurate. There are no merchant codes, there were no merchant codes for gun stores or gun retailers of any kind. And that presented a problem for us because we know that straw purchases are happening. That's where I may be illegal, can't buy a gun, so I get you to buy it for me and then I pay you for it. We know that kind of activity is happening. We know that there's black market trading of guns. We know that those black market guns started as legal gun purchases. So we want to do our part to detect these. And the only way we can do that is if we have a merchant code. We've been engaged in a three-year fight to get a merchant code status for gun retailers. And as of Friday, we won. Our application 
to the ISO, to uh, an international standards organization, to receive the merchant code has just been one. And in fact, over the weekend, Visa, MasterCard, and American Express all agreed that they will start using it. That's fantastic. And I think it's a perfect example of what you can do from your position in, in a way that can drive things forward. Fantastic. Congrats. Uh, we're breaking news on the HBS cast, kind of. Yes. <laughs> Let me take a step back then for you as the CEO of a bank. We're in a, in a strange macro environment over the last couple of years. Tell us how it is, Ben, managing this bank in the wake of COVID and a volatile inflationary rate environment. How have things been? Well, things have been really good for us. And, you know, this rising interest rate environment is something that we ultimately anticipated. And so we're certainly benefiting from it. We're also really benefiting from doubling down, bringing on new bankers that focus on community CDFIs, the real estate deals we do, to the climate deals, to everything else. The opportunities are greater for that work today. So now, Priscilla, what are you excited about with the future? So give me your outlook that you're excited about for Amalgamated Bank. Well, look, I'm excited about the fact that we've laid the foundation for this work to continue. We've done a lot of organizing uh, internally and hiring, and we've got really good people in place in four markets, San Francisco and Northern California, the Boston area, New York, and the DC area. But there are a lot of other markets that look like this. And we think there's a huge opportunity in Chicago. We like Los Angeles. There are a number of markets where we think the six segments that I mentioned earlier are not only prevalent, but thriving and need support and will be there. Exciting stuff, Priscilla. And, and like I said, I think that the amalgamated model is a fascinating one. And in a world in which we're all, as, as individuals, trying to think about how to do well and do good, seeing you do that at a corporate level is, is exciting. With that, Priscilla, let's move to the last segment of the podcast, something we like to call Best Ideas. This is where we offer up something that's added value to our lives recently called Best Ideas because it's our goal as investors to always maximize exposure to those. You're our guest, so I'm going to ask you to go first, Priscilla. What's your best idea this week? With what's just happened with us over the weekend, I have to say that my very best idea for everyone is that you pick up the phone or you get on your email and you send a note to the merchant bank of your choice, hopefully the one you're affiliated with, and you join all the pension plans and legislators and other politicians who have joined us in asking everyone to immediately implement these merchant codes and save lives. Fantastic. It's the best idea and a timely idea. So Priscilla, thank you for that. I like for my best idea each week to be inspired by my guest. And as we've heard, Priscilla is at the helm of a bank with deep union history, and I started to think about unions and their roles in society over time. And that led me to a movie that I think is sort of criminally underrated, that I think does a remarkable job not only of capturing the early labor movement in the U.S., but also with the overlay of race relations in the U.S. post-World War I. My best idea this week is the 1984 classic, The Killing Floor. The film tells the story of two Mississippi sharecroppers who move north to work in a meatpacking plant in Chicago and how the intersection of unions and race come to head against a backdrop of white soldiers returning home from the war and coming back into the workforce. It's directed by Bill Duke. Listeners may know him as an actor. He was in the movie Predator, amusingly enough, but he's a passionate and truly talented director of such films as Deep Cover and A Rage in Harlem. The movie isn't that well-known because it came out in the 80s on PBS to start, originally made for television, but it got very well-deserved critical acclaim over the years. It was actually screened last year at Cannes in a Cannes Classics presentation. So in honor of the leader of a union-owned bank founded around the time this movie was set, 
My best idea this week is the film The Killing Floor, easy to rent anywhere online now. That sounds fascinating. It's a fantastic film. Priscilla, with that, though, it's time to say goodbye for the week. We are very excited to watch your work at Amalgamated, and always a pleasure to catch up. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for being on. Thanks again to our guest, Priscilla Sims-Brown. Check out our show notes to learn more about Priscilla and her work with Amalgamated Bank. You'll also find a link to my best idea, the 1984 classic, The Killing Floor, directed by Bill Duke. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners.